Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Family Renewal Podcast. And I am excited to have a special guest on the show today. This is a newer friend of mine that I'm still kind of getting to know. Alex Newman is one of my favorite journalists and I think someone that everyone who cares about liberty and cares about our country needs to know about. Uh, he is, I think, one of the bright lights within the journalistic industry. He is a journalist and an author. Uh, I actually first found out about uh, Alex through this book, which is uh, Crimes of the Educators, and it was co-written by Samuel Blumenfeld and Alex. The subtitle is How Utopians are using government schools to destroy America's children. Now, those of you who know anything about my work know that I have done a a substantial amount of research into the history of the government school system and the movement, the founders, the framers of this model of government-controlled statist education. And one of the guys who was a big influence in my life in terms of that information was Samuel Blumenfeld. And he wrote so many wonderful books. So many people don't know uh, of him. I believe he passed away in 2015. But he was uh, an author of so many great books like Is Public Education Necessary? NEA Trojan Horse in America, The uh, Whole Language OBE Fraud. He was the author of a phonics program called Alpha Phonics and so on and so forth. Uh, The Blumenfeld Education Newsletter, actually, um, my, my mother, who published Homeschool Digest starting back in 1988, she picked Sam up as one of her original columnists for Homeschool Digest. And so he wrote for many years for her magazine. So I, I literally, as a young teen, grew up reading his articles, had a huge impact in my understanding of, of how to think about education. And so the last book that he ever wrote as a full book was this book, Crimes of the Educators. And when I saw this name on there, Alex Newman, I thought, I don't know who this person is. But if Sam trusted this person to sort of handle co-writing this book with him, uh, boy, that's endorsement enough for me. That's somebody that I need to get to know. So then I started to read Alex's columns in places like the New American Magazine and World Net Daily, some of those uh, sites you may be familiar with, and was super impressed with the professionalism of his journalism. And then through a mutual friend, we got connected on a project that um, was being put together by the New American Magazine. And I I think Alex really was uh, very much kind of the mind behind pulling this all together. It was a special edition of New American that's called Rescuing Our Children. And this is a magazine that you can buy in bulk and give away to your friends. And we highly encourage you to do that. And Alex can explain to you how to do that. But anyway, I ended up writing two articles for this particular issue, one on uh, sort of the history of uh, homeschooling, I think, and and an apologetic for homeschooling, and then one on uh, Christian education and the importance of, of Christian education. 
And so what surprised me a little bit about this project is that the New American is a longstanding um, magazine that tends to deal a lot with political issues. And of course, education is a political issue. But within the educational establishment uh, there, and within journalism, there is such a fear of criticizing the system because it's such a powerful system. In fact, I'm not mistaken, the public, American public school system employs more employees than any other enterprise. So it's a, uh, it's a big uh, industry within our country, and it employs a lot of people, and people have very strong emotional attachments to it. So to question the system is something that most periodicals and most journalists are just not willing to do because they know the potential backlash. But Alex is a guy who really goes where uh, he believes the truth is. And so long-winded introduction to you, Alex. But first of all, let me just tell you, thank you for being on the, the show. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping to kind of introduce our listeners to you so that uh, they can become familiar with what you do. Let, let me just ask you this question as far as the background, because uh, as I've gotten to know you more recently... I haven't known a lot about your story or your journey or what has led you here. So if you would, would you take us back into how you got started into journalism as a career, what it was that inspired you to pursue that and, and what channels you pursued in terms of uh, becoming a professional journalist? Well, th let me start off by saying thank you so much for having me on, Israel. I really appreciate it. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. Uh, obviously, you're very well known in the homeschool world and being a homeschool family, uh, you know, we come across your name all the time. So it's, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you very much. Um, the story of how I got into journalism is actually a lot less cool than I wish it were. Um, <laughs> um, basically, I, I got expelled from high school. I was a terrible student. I was completely out of control. I wasn't very good at anything, um, with the exception of writing. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, I had some English teachers that really had inspired me to to appreciate writing and to get into writing. And so it was the one thing that I could actually do. Uh, math had quit being my forte in like seventh grade. And I, I kind of just stumbled into it. You know, I, I, I got a GED. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, hey, I'll enroll in college. Well, I'm not going to do engineering. I'm not going to do anything that requires math. So I guess, you know, journalism is going to be the default. And so I kind of landed there. And in retrospect, you know, I, I think there was the hand of providence involved because I think it worked out uh, in an amazing way. It actually led me to all kinds of important truths. It, it helped uh, guide my path, even to, to becoming saved, to kind of the route that I took, um, you know, went right through journalism and, and seeking the truth and, and trying to understand the world. It really brought me back to the Bible. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. But uh, yeah, the story is a lot less glamorous or you know romantic than than uh, I think a lot of people would think. So you know what, I love that story, and part of the reason I do, I've got a new workshop that I've been giving at conferences this past year, and it's called Education versus Schooling. They are not the same. And what I found is that in history, some of the greatest minds in human history were horrible students. If you look at people like Winston Churchill. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, these people were, in many cases, uh, they hated school. Uh, you know, they were the bottom of their class, some of them. I just did not fit into that mold. And I, I think the reason for that is that the American government school system 
is one of the very few industries in the world whose intention is to aim at average. And so because they're so good at that, at aiming for and creating average students who are not average, students who in some ways uh, are exceptional in, in certain areas, have a very difficult time conforming to that. And we find that when they're allowed to, it's the confines of that environment, they quite often excel. And, and I think we can even look at the people who have created most of the tech companies and the dot-com companies. These are not the people who did well in college that the people who dropped out. And so uh, I, I think that your story shows that uh, you're one of the, the most educated people that I know, uh, that education truly is not synonymous with schooling and that in some ways schooling is one of the greatest detriments to education. And, uh, and do, do you think I'm going to you know, throw, throw a curveball at you here, but do you think that your experience in school and yet the fact that you're very well educated helped to break you from that myth of just the worship of uh, that the academic institution as being necessary for success in life? It really did, Israel. And, you know, I actually have a very unique educational background. Uh, you know, I, I grew up overseas. Uh, I went to a French school in Mexico City for seven years and an international school in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and then another international school in Switzerland. I was expelled and uh, I just absolutely hated school. But I went to these very, very, I guess, kind of elite institutions, if you will, kind of training up the, you know, the managerial class. And so I went to school with children of billionaires and diplomats and um, you know, the great men of industry and all that. Uh, but I never liked it. I, I always thought it was stupid. I always thought it was stifling. When I look back, I'm, I'm just shocked and appalled in, in, um, eight, seventh or eighth grade geography. Uh, we had a, a teacher who required us to participate in a Wiccan ritual in class. Right? Uh, they, they drew a five pointed star on the floor and we were supposed to walk around it and talk about earth and wind. And, fire. and when I look back at that, I'm like, Oh my goodness, you know, this is what children all over the world are going through is just this idiotic process where a bell rings and, you know, we, we come in and we're supposed to learn something that we're not even interested in that, uh, you know, a lot of times it's not even true. This, for example, the evolution idea was just drilled into my head so thoroughly that it never even occurred to me that there might be a different point of view. I didn't wake up to the fraud of evolution until after I was out of school. Uh, the first time somebody told me that evolution might not be true, I actually laughed in their face. I feel so bad about it. Um, and so that's how thorough the brainwashing was. But by the time I was 16, I, I was completely convinced that school was worse than a waste of time. Didn't bother me a bit that I was expelled. In fact, I was thrilled about it. Like, yes, that means I don't have to go back to school. And so it was after that when my education really began, Israel. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, I started reading books. Uh, you know, I, I had always been big into books. And I, and I think that's a big part of why I got into writing and how I gained uh, knowledge. But it wasn't until after I was expelled from school and really started digging into nonfiction books, looking at history, looking at uh, theology, that I, I feel like I really became educated. And, you know, I still have a long way to go, obviously, but I, I think my education really began after my schooling ended, as, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, and, and, you know, then I look at, at what American children are subjected to in the public school system, and I realize by comparison, I had a phenomenal experience, and I, I just, I feel so bad for the kids who are stuck 
uh, in these schools, uh, not just in America, obviously, but public schools all over the world. Uh, it's a tragedy of enormous proportions. And I think that's why I've become so, it's one of the reasons why I've become so passionate about sounding the alarm here and, and getting parents to recognize that this is not uh, first of all, not the only way for children to get an education. And in fact, it might be counterproductive. Now, let's go to the issue of journalism. When you got into this field of journalism, uh, I don't know what your expectations were, what you thought it would be like. But if you go back 100 years into our history, the modernistic worldview as it relates to journalism taught that the role of the journalist was to print unbiased fact to just present uh, information and data bits, and that the role of the reader then was to decide what the truth was from the information. But when the postmodern revolution took place in the 1960s, moving forward into higher education, the 70s and, and so forth, postmodernity came to promote the concept that true objectivity and true neutrality was impossible and I'll just put in here parenthetically, um, I actually agree with that, uh, but not for the reasons that they do. Um, but their view was that everyone really is a missionary. Everyone really is a, a campaigner, a, an activist for their cause. And so let's just be uh, let's just be unfiltered about that. Let's not try to hide that. Let's not try to pretend and so what we've seen happen, real 2000s, I think, as uh, post-modernity's effects have begun to, to bloom and harvest, is that we've seen news media polarizing to where you have a, a right media and a left media. Uh, and, and there's very few journalists who even pretend to be objective in any sense. And so... Uh, what I, I guess I'd like your perspective on and your viewpoint on is obviously we all come at the world with a certain set of lenses and we in philosophy call that a worldview that we all see things through a certain lens. And uh, you, you mentioned, uh, made allusion to your, your Christian faith. And so obviously that filters how you see things. And if you're an atheist, that's going to filter how you see things. Uh, if you're a, a progressive or a leftist or a socialist, communist or or whatever, you're you're going to see the world a certain way. So in one sense, there there really uh, is no such thing as complete objectivity. We all have a set of lenses that we through which we see the world. But I think postmodernity went beyond that. I think postmodernity went beyond merely acknowledging or recognizing that we all have inherent presuppositions and biases to kind of denying the knowability of objective truth. And positing that there's only my truth versus your truth. And so it really becomes a screaming match with the talking heads on even network television or, or talk radio where we just try to bully each other with my truth versus your truth, uh, almost conceding that there just is no objectivity. It's almost like whoever yells the loudest or cuts the other person off the most wins. Um, what would you say is a proper approach from journalistically to uh, addressing some of these issues and how, how do we kind of rise above and transcend just the bullying that ends up taking place within journalism where people are just simply trying to, to, to force 
uh, an ideology on people w without really caring what the facts are or, or really be even believing that an objective truth exists. Yeah, that's such an important question, Israel. And I think the the journalistic world is is really struggling with these questions right now. And and I mean, the industry is really suffering. A, a lot of newspapers now are shutting down, partly because they don't have any readers, because people can't read, and because people are tired of reading propaganda. And so I think it's a, a really tricky question. I mean, I, I, probably the defining characteristic of postmodernism is this idea that there is no objective truth, that we all get to kind of establish truth in our own minds. And then, yeah, as, as we see on the television today, whoever can shout over the other one uh, and, and project their version of the truth more loudly uh, or you know, more effectively or with better graphics is somehow uh, going to win this discussion. And I think we really need to get away from that. I think this is an incredibly deadly idea. We've seen the consequences of this. It's it's not good. Um, and, and it kind of allows people to each live in their own little bubble. And we're seeing this in America now. I mean, it, it's polarized to the point where people live in entirely different realities in their head. I mean, obviously, we all share the same uh, objective reality. But in people's minds, I mean, you can even talk to your neighbor. And if they watch CNN and you watch Fox News or, uh, you know, you read uh, one publication and they read the local newspaper, I mean, you, you can't even talk to each other because you're not even speaking the same language anymore. You're not even dealing with the same objective set of facts. And so I think that's very problematic. Now, uh, there's a sense in which I think there is a, a really a great value to an attempt, at least, to doing unbiased objective journalism. Uh, and that's where I started off at. In fact, uh, when I was in college, I was writing for different newspapers. I won't mention uh, any names because I don't want to uh, criticize them too too much and too openly. But I, I was writing for a newspaper that was owned by the New York Times. And um, it was incredible to me because I would put together these stories that I thought were perfectly, perfectly, it, it, to the extent that that's possible, unbiased and objective. I'll give you an example. I wrote an article about uh, on, on the campus at the University of Florida there was this movement to be allowed to carry concealed weapons. Um, you know, there were students who thought, hey, why, you know, other adults can carry concealed weapons. They can have a permit. They can bring it to their business. They can bring it to wherever. Why can't we as students? And so there was this grassroots movement, and they were doing protests. And I tried to write an article that spent, you know, 50% of the time talking about, uh, about the people who supported this idea, and then 50% of the time talking about people who rejected that idea. And I thought I did a pretty decent job. I submitted my story, and the editors just butchered it. They took out so much of the information coming from the people who supported uh, concealed carry on campus. Uh, and they left all the material from people who were saying this was crazy and this was dangerous. And I was thinking, you know, I thought we were, and, and the pretense of this newspaper was that it was unbiased and objective journalism. And that showed me a few things. In fact, it was a real learning experience for me. Uh, and it was at that point where I decided I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to do this for a living. I, I'm not going to compromise my principles and present something to people as if it were objective, unbiased, a factual reporting, when in fact the editors butchered it and turned it into a one-sided propaganda piece against the right to keep and bear arms and against concealed carry on campus. So that was a big learning experience for me. And where I am now, Israel, is... You know, I'm okay with people being biased. You know, if you're biased, that's fine with me. But what I do think is really important is that we insist on disclosure. Uh, we insist on honesty. If you want to be biased, good. That's fine. But just be honest about your bias. If you're a conservative, then you should let people know that you're a conservative. And, and really, when you break it down, everybody is very biased, I think. And this is true even of the journalists who do try hard to be unbiased in their reporting. Uh, 
it's not even necessarily a conscious thing. You know, who are you going to interview? You could call this professor or you could call that professor. And who are you going to interview? You might not even be doing it consciously, but hey, you know, this guy, his, his views align a little bit more with mine. So I'll quote him in the story rather than this other guy who I think is crazy. And so our, our unconscious biases even bleed into the story. So where I am now, I prefer to read and I prefer to write uh, articles and, and opinion columns where the viewpoint and the worldview of the person writing uh, is very clear. You know, I'm biased in favor of the truth. I'm biased in favor of what's right and wrong as defined by God, who is, of course, the, the creator of morality and right and wrong. Uh, and, and I think it's fine to, to write from that perspective, just as long as you're not pretending to be something that you're not. And so, you know, I think there's room in journalism world for, and, and I think there's a, a role to play for this kind of un, unbiased, objective reporting that uh, Americans used to kind of think they were getting, at least back in the 50s and the 60s and even into the 70s. But I also think there is, uh, you know, a role to play for this kind of what's called oftentimes opinion journalism. And I really think it's up to the reader. You know, you need to be discerning. You need to be a responsible consumer of information. Don't just sit there in front of CNN for eight hours and expect that you're going to be a well-informed person. In fact, quite the opposite is true. So getting a diversity of viewpoints and really going to sources that are fair, that are honest about their biases. I, you know, I think the New American is a good example. If you go to the About Us page, it says right there, we support the Constitution. We support what's right over what's wrong. And so that is the bias through which we, we do our writing. Uh, and I think that's really the way to do it. And that way it's full disclosure. Everybody reading it knows, uh, you know, the people who wrote this believe such and such. And, and I think that's the way to go, Israel. And, and I, I think the problem with journalism today really is a lack of honesty. It has become yes. this postmodernist viewpoint where these people who have these viewpoints and want to peddle them to everyone else without them even realizing that they're being spoon-fed a viewpoint uh, are being tremendously dishonest. And I think it's harmful and I think it's dangerous. Yeah, if you go back far enough, 80 years ago, even in the United States, uh, I think people would understand that everyone had their own inherent bias or their own background, uh, their own lenses that filtered how they saw the world. But journalists would be punished uh, professionally if, if they were caught flagrantly lying and deceiving the public. Uh, today, it's expected. And it makes it so difficult right. because people just literally don't have a way of being able to trust the news media. And, and here, here's, a, here's a hardball pitch for you. Uh, we, we haven't talked about in detail what all we might talk about here, but this is a question I really want to ask you. So uh, forgive me for throwing a slider low and away. But one of the things that I find is because there is such a distrust uh, of the media, uh, some people have grown to look for alternative sources of information outside of mainstream media. And, and I can respect that. I think to some extent, you look at the history of communist nations, People have always had to do that, shortwave radio, and they've had to find ways to get information that was outside of, of what was censored and the propaganda that was just promoted by those who controlled the industry. So, But what tends to happen is that um, the, the more fringy, perhaps, uh, the sources for information, the more you can get into things that are factually biased in a different way, factually inaccurate, put it that way, in, in a different way. And you can get into uh, things that would be called just conspiracy theory as opposed to truth. And I, I find that when people become disillusioned with the society's gatekeepers, that they come, become very open to the whole concept of conspiracy theory. And, and when I use the term conspiracy theory, 
I mean things that are not factually true, uh, but that are, um, you know, that, that are believed by those who have become disenfranchised with the establishment or the established sources of truth that they always believed in. So, you know, they become disenfranchised with uh, the information that they get from uh, their, their school, their government school, for example, and they, they come to see that evolution uh, is, a, is a, a theory at best. You know, it's, it's not fact, uh, maybe global climate change or the things that they've been taught about history where they realize they've been given a revisionist history. Sometimes they will then swing into uh, sources that are providing them with, with information that's not factual. Okay, so with background, uh, realizing that there are, you know, true conspiracy theories that are just not based in truth at all. What I find is that when people are on the beginning side of this this confrontation with inaccuracy and bias and falsehood within the establishment, whether that's the government, whether it's the healthcare industry, uh, whether that's you know whatever societal gatekeepers they they had previously trusted, and they start to. Uh, they start to have their, their faith in those establishments shaken a little bit. Whenever they hear new information, uh, I find that the default is to always assume that this new information is conspiracy theory and that it is false and it is factual because it, it isn't the party line. It's not the line. So let me just give you an example. Let's say that I were to make a statement and say, that higher education in America is dominantly controlled by socialists and cultural Marxists. Now, you would not in any way question that. You, that doesn't shock you. you know, <laughs> I'm looking at your face. You're not surprised by that statement. That doesn't sound conspiratorial. Uh, because of the research that you've done on this, that's just fact. But for someone who hasn't done substantive research on it, it sounds to them like I've just said, Oh, and also last night, my grandmother was abducted by UFOs. <laughs> and so from a journalistic standpoint, when you are a conservative journalist and you're writing outside of the established networks of CNN and MSN and so forth, um, people often will read things that you write that maybe question global, uh, global warming, for example, or, you know, question uh the things that many people in our society just assume to be true, uh, perhaps even evolution. Uh, what do you think is the, the proper perspective uh, for us as citizens in being able to sort through what is just really wacky and crazy alternative media that isn't trustworthy um, and, and that which is, is viable, um, but that deserves being looked into more? How do we how do we question the the gatekeepers, if you will, without going down the rabbit hole of insanity? <laughs> does that question make sense to you at all? It does, Israel. And, and I think this is such an important question. I think Americans and people all over the world should be asking themselves this question right now, because we are in a media ecosystem where there are thousands, potentially even millions of different competing truth claims, right? Everybody now can just have a blog and they can put any spin on anything they want. They can put out completely fake news. They can make stuff up. We have satire websites, some of which are absolutely hilarious, like the Babylon Bee, right? Right. <laughs> phenomenal stuff. And so how does a person, even before we become 
real media consumers. And it goes back to uh, a, a liberal arts, a, a proper classical education uh, in the Western world would have taught people how to use discernment, how to uh, establish truth, how to think through things with logic and with the tools of reason that God has given us. And uh, unfortunately, that has all been obliterated, right? You can go through 12 years of government school and never take a logic class. And so you, you see a guy on CNN say, well, you're just a big poo-poo head. And, oh, well, he's a big poo-poo head. Well, I don't want to believe a big poo-poo head. Uh, and, you know, that's the level at which we're at. So the, the process to rebuild a thinking society is going to be a very long one. <laughs> I mean, we're going to really have a, this. This is a struggle that's going to be with us our entire lives, Israel. It's going to, I mean, it's going to be even more pronounced during our children's lives and during our grandchildren's lives. And there's no solution to this. But I think ultimately it's going to boil down to, having a proper education, having a, the means to evaluate truth claims, to look at things logically and, and reasonably to see whether they make sense. Uh, and, and also we need to have a standard and we've really lost a standard. We were talking earlier about postmodernism. There is no more standard of truth anymore. Anybody can just come up with their own truth. And if I see the world this way and I think Gaia is this goddess and you know we're all part of a, a global ecosystem and you know we need to submit to Gaia and worship it, um, you know, we really need to get back to having an objective standard of truth. And I think for Christians, um, the answer is obvious. The Bible is the ultimate authority when it comes to truth. And if something conflicts with the Bible, which so much of the what the media peddles today conflicts with what God has revealed to us in his word uh, on, on basic things like marriage and gender. I mean, you, you literally have people on television today telling you that there are infinite genders and, and that a boy can go, you know, mutilate himself surgically and, and take a bunch of hormones and suddenly he'll be a, a woman. Right. That's self-evidently ridiculous. And we could start with the Bible. And say, no, God said he created the male and female. That's, that's preposterous. Or we could go to biology and say, no, you know, the, if, if you study biology, you look at the cell and you see that there's DNA and the DNA has chromosomes and the chromosomes clearly establish whether you're a male or a female. So we need to get back to having uh, the means for uncovering and for establishing truth. And we've really lost that in our society. I think the homeschool movement and, and a lot of the Christian schools are one bright spot in this, but I think the the majority of our population, and even that might be conservative, I and mean, we might be talking super majority, uh, has really been denied the tools to be able to establish truth. So it's a very, very dangerous situation, Israel. When you think about the potential consequences of this, you see people can be very easily misled, very easily manipulated, and we see what happens in we all throughout history and, and all over the world today. We see what happens when a society becomes divorced from truth, when political leaders or government propaganda or non-government propaganda can manipulate people's emotions. They can stampede people into doing absolutely idiotic or even evil things like putting people in concentration camps, like turning against their parents and having them uh, you know, charged by communist authorities for being communist or anti-communist revolutionaries. Um, this is a serious problem, is and it takes, I think it extends way beyond media. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any simple answer. I think it's going to be a long, drawn-out process. It's going to have to involve education, and the consequences of getting this wrong, I, I think, could be potentially catastrophic. So one of the things that I've seen you involved in that I assume is one of your attempts to sort of rebuild and reconstruct this ability of people to discern and to, and to not be misled and not be deceived by so many forces that are trying to uh, manipulate the masses with propaganda 
is Freedom Project Education. Can you tell us uh, how you got involved with that and, and really what that is? Because I know some of our listeners may have never heard of it, may not know what it is, but uh, I'm assuming since you've kind of worked with them and been involved in that project, that's something that you believe is a step in the right direction towards helping inoculate the next generation against uh, being susceptible to lies. Yeah, well, thank you, Israel. And, and actually, I was there at the ground floor. I think I was the first teacher they hired, and I'm, I'm the longest-serving teacher there. Uh, so I was there when this was just an idea. And for those who aren't familiar, Freedom Project Academy, it's a K-12 through online classical school based firmly in biblical principles. And uh, we do try to do exactly what we were just discussing. You know, we, we have uh, a requirement that students study logic that they study uh, economics, that they study uh, Latin, that they study philosophy. And so the children who come through our school, uh, they need to, if they're going to graduate with a diploma, it's, a, it's an accredited school, they need to have uh, the tools firmly at their disposal to be able to do the kind of things that we were just talking about, properly you know, determine and establish truth and things like that. So that really is our, our goal is to create uh, you know, future leaders who are well-educated, who are familiar with biblical principles, who are familiar with logic, and who can think for themselves. I, we think it's going to be very, very important. Uh, we've seen phenomenal results. We started about 10 years ago. I think we had, we had like 20 students when we started. Uh, now we've got many, many hundreds of students uh, all over the United States, and I think in 15 different countries right now. We've got a media division, which is a Freedom Project Media. I keep an education blog there called the Newman Report, where I stay up to speed on what's going on in homeschooling and the government school system, higher education. Um, it really is a good tool. And you know what we say is we don't replace parents, right? There's this prevailing ideology within the education establishment that uh, basically schools are the new parents. And you even have people saying this, right? Schools are functionally now the parents. And, and we reject that idea completely. Uh, what we say is we partner with parents. Uh, I read your book, uh, What Does God Say About, uh, Does God Have an Opinion About Education? It was phenomenal. And I agree with you. Parents must be the primary educators of their children. Um, God said so, and that's reason enough. But even beyond that, um, you know, who's better qualified to, to love and train children than the people who love them most in the entire world? Of course, their parents, right? So I agree with you. And so what we try to do at Freedom Project is really partner with parents, not usurp their role, not hide things from them, not take their place, but really partner with them to facilitate uh, the parents properly educating, raising, and discipling their own children. If people want to know more, you can go to fpeusa.org. Uh, we do have a, an article in here about Freedom Project, and actually the uh, academic director, Dr. Duke Pesta, he wrote, uh, I think, at least two of the articles, maybe three, in here. And so if people want to learn more, they can get a copy of that uh, special report. It's at thenewamerican.com slash rescuingourchildren, uh, or you can just go to fpeusa.org, and you'll find the website. Yeah, and so um, we want people to order copies of that uh, publication as well. What's the best way for them to get the bulk copies of that? Yeah, so if you go to thenewamerican.com forward slash rescuing our children, um, you can order one copy in PDF, and I think it's you know it's practically free. It's like seventy five cents, or you can order a hundred or even a thousand copies. Uh, I think we're in our eighth printing now. We now have uh, the expanded second edition, so we've got some new articles in there about uh, you know being very careful when it comes to choosing a private school. You know, so many of these. Uh, Christian schools are actually using government school textbooks, and so we urge people to do their due diligence. Um, and that's at thenewamerican.com slash rescuing our children. Uh, Israel, you have some great articles in there about the importance of uh, Christian 
and education and uh, the, the incredible benefits of homeschooling. So I do hope people will get that. You know, this coronavirus has kind of thrown a monkey wrench in things. We had people all over the country distributing this. Our goal is to get a million copies out. We're really aiming for, you know, pastors, parents, uh, business leaders, policymakers. But uh, if you don't have copies yet, I encourage you, viewer, go get at least one, read it from front to back. And if you agree, hey, this is important, maybe think about going back and getting 10 or 20 or, or 50 for your pastor and the elders at your church and your neighbors and maybe your homeschool community. A lot of good information in there um, on the history of the public school system, where it's going, some of the problems, uh, the sexualization that's taking place, and obviously the solution, which is the homeschooling and, and getting back to a traditional, sound, uh, Bible-based education. I want to throw two more questions at you that are uh, simple, but related to Freedom Project Academy. When people hear online academy, they often are thinking of a, a virtual charter school or K-12 or something like that. So is Freedom Project Academy government-funded, uh, and does it use Common Core curriculum? Well, thank you for asking, Israel. I should have mentioned that uh, when we were originally talking about this. Uh, we don't take one penny in government money, and we never will. Uh, the reason why is because we've seen this happen all over the country and all over the world. As soon as the government funding starts, the regulations start, the uh, you know the uh, mandates start, the demands for using Common Core start, uh, very problematic. And we also are incredibly careful to screen out any and all Common Core. So uh, we're actually developing our own math curriculum now, um, but we make sure that every teacher uh, uses Common Core free materials. And that's one of our big selling points. Parents all over America, the overwhelming majority of parents dislike Common Core, and I think quite rightly, uh, it's a terrible, terrible program. And so we're very careful to keep all of that out and uh, and rely on tried, tested, proven educational tools, methods, and resources to make sure that children get the best possible education that we can provide. Well, I want people to be able to follow you, to connect with you, to get in touch with um, your work and to read your columns. What are some of the best places online that people can connect with with your writing and to follow what you do? Uh, well, thank you, Israel. So most of my articles go up at thenewamerican.com or in the print magazine. Uh, that's all. You can subscribe to that at thenewamerican.com. Uh, I'm also writing for the Epic Times now. I've got a, a big series on public education. I'm at part 15 now, so people can go read that. Uh, a lot of information that really has been lost even to the history books. Uh, of course, Sam Blumenfeld was a big uh, help. All the things he wrote was a big help in that. Uh, my education blog is the Newman Report. That's at freedomproject.com. That's Freedom Project Media. And, um, you know, if you put my name into a search engine, you'll find a lot. I'm on social media at Alex Newman underscore J-O-U on Twitter. And at Facebook, it's Alex J. Newman 86. And, you know, I, it, people can email me. I'm very accessible. I love getting questions from parents and students. And, you know, I'm always happy to help uh, if and when I can. And thank you again, Israel, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I think it's important. You know, this is a, a show where we talk a lot about family. I think it's so important for us as parents to help our children learn how to discern because for centuries now, evil people have used propaganda to deceive the masses and to control them. And we have to know how to cut through that. We have to be able to have detectors where we recognize what's false and how we're able to understand the truth. And we as Christians, I think, um, we should be able, we, we've been given everything that we need. We have all the tools to be able to do this. But one of the things I think is important for us on a practical level is knowing who some of the voices are that we can trust. And so I encourage uh, our listeners to read your columns, and even to, if they have older teenagers especially, to encourage them to read the columns as well because 
again, for me, reading Sam Blumenfeld's articles back in the 80s and the 90s was so formative, uh, along with other voices, but it was so formative in helping me to be able to think differently. And so, you know, why is phonics a better approach than look, say, and whole language? And what is wrong with outcome-based education and all of the, those issues that, uh, you know, the, the dominant view of the day was that we should just go along with the educational establishment. And, you know, Sam really encouraged us not to do that. And I see you challenging us not to just believe something because it's printed in CNN, not to just believe the uh, agenda that's being promoted by the leftist socialist progressive movement. And I, I think it's a great resource. I, I'm, again, so encouraged you're out there. I want to challenge people, too, to pick up a copy of Crimes of the Educators. Uh, do you have a particular place that would be best for people to grab that? Uh, unfortunately, they're very hard to find now, Israel, except in Kindle. Um, the, uh, the print copies all sold out. And uh, unfortunately, WND Books, the publisher, has not yet gone back to press with more. Um, you can get them used on Amazon. I think they're selling for about $100 now. Once uh, my speaking starts back up, I'll be traveling around the country. I'll have some copies of it. But uh, Kindle really is the best way to get it right now. And don't tell anybody, but there's free PDF versions available online that are bootleg. I won't tell anybody if you read <laughs> one of those. So, <laughs> so, so let me, let me uh, mention this as well. Last year, uh, before coronavirus and COVID-19 cr crisis, uh, you were on tour speaking all around America, uh, talking about issues of globalism, talking about education, talking about the sexualization of our children, uh, gender dysphoria, a lot of things that are important. Some things that aren't pleasant to listen to, but they're forces uh, that are just dominating and taking over our schools and taking over society. And so it's important for us to know what, uh, what the agenda is. Um, so what's the best way for somebody to know when you're going to be speaking in their area? Do you have an email list or should they follow you on social media? How, how can they know where you're going to be once uh, all this clears up and you get back on the road doing events? How can people know when you're going to be in their area or how could they sponsor an event in their in, in their area to have you speak for their group? Yeah, thank you so much, Israel. Yeah, I, I did uh, an incredible national tour uh, last summer. It was one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. Got to speak to many, many thousands of great Americans all across the country. Uh, did some overseas speaking as well. In fact, this month I was supposed to be in Uganda and Bulgaria and other countries uh, speaking about these issues as well. Unfortunately, the coronavirus threw a monkey wrench in it. But um, I will be starting up again if and when society ever gets back to normal. And uh, people can find out about, about that at libertysentinel.org slash tour. And I will be putting stuff out on social media. So right now, I think almost everything on my schedule has been canceled up until about June, maybe even July. But uh, once things get back to normal, I'll be posting those up and putting it on social media. And um, I would love to see people there. So. Excellent. Well, I will endeavor to have you back on this program because uh, you're one of the most informed people that I know, and particularly maybe if we have specific issues that are coming up that are culturally relevant. Uh, we'd love to have you back on. We can talk about those. But thank you so much for taking time to be on the uh, podcast with us. Hey, thank you so much, Israel. It was such a pleasure. Really, really appreciate it and looking forward to keeping in touch. So thank you. All right. God bless. God bless you too. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit FamilyRenewal.org.